absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And this is Dave Debo. On the program today, a lot of interesting discussion. One of them is looking at the idea of debt or freedom from debt as a civil right. When we talk about civil rights, we think certainly about freedom, but not necessarily in that context, the idea of freedom from debt. But there's a group at the University at Buffalo in their law school that has started to work with some clinics on the east side at the Merriweather Library and elsewhere that actually helps people fight debt in the courts. It's an interesting concept because, again, they're looking at freedom from debt as a civil right. Some of those people, Glenada Garlock and Paulette Campbell, will be here with Jay Moran in just about half an hour. But between now and then, let us welcome Nate Boyd. He's an activist in the community. You've probably seen him on Facebook, which is where he does a lot of his grassroots work. He has a campaign underway to try and get more recognition and, quite frankly, financial support to the survivors of TOPS. And by the survivors, I don't mean the heirs, and I don't mean people that were necessarily shot and and injured inside the store. But there is a whole raft of other people that we'll be talking about for the next segment here. So, Nate, thanks for stopping by. Glad you could do this. Hey, uh, thank you, Dave. Actually, uh, thank you for having me. Um, This is a real serious issue uh, that's going on here. I had some people reach out to me. I've been in and out of town helping my sisters. Three of them have cancer. Mm. So I'm caught up, you know, back and forth Busy out guy. of town. But, right. uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, some people reached out to me. A uh, gentleman, I really didn't know. Uh, Carl, uh, I think, I forget his last name. We call him Buff. Anyway, uh, uh, KG Green took me over to his home. I got a chance to speak with him. He wanted to talk about it. And his major issue was that he wasn't getting any type of help. Talk about who he is, though. Was he in the store at the time of the shooting? Yes, yeah, so I, I do. Exactly. I'm going to talk about him. Uh, first of all, but I'm, this, this gentleman is a guy that made $60 an hour work, and he worked for over 20 years and can't work anymore. Mm-hmm. He was in tops during the shooting. As a matter of fact, the shooter was actually chasing him down as he was trying to dodge and ship. He said at least two times he fired at him. Uh, he, was at, he was at a point where one woman, he had to let the woman's hand go who got hit next to him, had to let her hand go and felt so terrible about what he was seeing he actually him arabian man and his son were actually in some corner uh down down on the ground and the arabian gentleman was actually holding his young son's mouth covering his young son's mouth so that he wouldn't scream out and he said and and the gunman came right up to where they were at but then decided to go a different direction so he's totally traumatized and what does he need right now talk about the, the the space he's in okay well the space he's in now is he cannot work because of his mental condition, he can't work. So he went from making over $100,000 a year to not making any money. His home is falling apart. He needs some uh, help. He told me to this day, 
he has only received, well, at least to a couple weeks ago, he had only received $3,500 as far as some type of financial uh, help out from what's going on here. Okay, now he needs financial assistance. And he pointed out to me something that, that really irritated me, Dave. He said that the city or the state government, whatever, had collected over $6.5 million. There, okay. there is the National Compassion Fund, uh, part, of, uh, part of a national organization that set aside a, a, a fund for TOPS. And, yeah, my, my understanding is exactly that. That fund had $6.3 million. Plus. They're having to distribute that fund to a lot of different people, heirs of the victims, um, people were injured by, in the shooting, those who suf- suffered uh, physical abuse uh, uh, in the shooting, those who suffered mental abuse, and then the tops employees who were there. Sounds like he'd fall into one of those categories, well, mental well, mental stress because he was there at the time. Well, sure. He, he, was, uh, he was actually one of the shoppers, as I say. And um, he is he is mentally affected. He he cried most of the time when I was there interviewing him. He couldn't really talk. He's a very private person. He did not want to even share this experience. As a matter of fact, he's asked me to come back and talk to him again because after mm-hmm. he saw the first video, he feels more comfortable in, in trying to share his story. But his story is a story of, of being left behind. He says that him and he's reached out to other survivors also, and I have talked to other survivors who feel like they're being left behind. They, 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 they say that it's not just about the bag, and what, they, what the bag is is money. People call money the bag. Yeah, I get you. But the survivors want people to understand. It's not just about the bag, but the bag is very important. They need financial assistance. Why wouldn't they, and why should they feel bad about it? Now, if there was $6.5 million, I heard that the survivors' uh, families, the, the people that were deceased, got $350,000. At least that's what I understand from the fire chief, the former fire chief. Darnell Whitfield. Right, that's what his family got. When posed with the question, did he want more money, he said no, that it would be better spent to helping the survivors. At least that's how I heard the story. It is secondhand right. from one of his members. So, Math has never been my strong point, but let's let's do some here quickly. Okay. 350000 times 10 families. That would be 3.5 mil. Yeah, and maybe more because uh, it okay. could be more than one family member. Well, even if it was well, even if it was five hundred thousand, Dave. All right. Okay, and ten people that would still leave one point five million dollars plus whatever else was collected. Yeah. Now, to my understanding, these survivors, and that's including the tops employees, the people that almost got killed, they were in there. Everybody. To my understanding, this gentleman has only received thirty five hundred dollars. Now, I'd heard previously they were going to get like twenty five thousand or something. Anyway, he's only got thirty five hundred. Now, I reached out to a pastor, uh, Kenny Simmons, who told me that they have uh, funding. Pastor Kenny Simmons told me that they have funding for these survivors over on um, at the YMCA, the old YMCA over on Ferry. Okay, a ferry uh, near DuPont. You can go there. I understand you can get $1,000 there, bring your bills, and they'll help the survivors with their bills. So I'm hoping they're going to do that. But if we if we try to crunch the numbers. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't seem realistic that all that money should be gone or that they should have only received such a small amount of money under circumstances. What do you say, Dave? Well, I think the argument can be made that there were some people who obviously lost family members and they have, a- have suffered a level of grief, a level of loss different from the guys that you're advocating for. Uh, uh, well, well, that could that, that's that's absolutely true. But... 
Understand the extent of what these people are going through. This gentleman tells me that he has constant nightmares. He keeps waking up, seeing this lady, seeing her hand, had to mm. let her go, hearing the gunshots, seeing the dead bodies around, okay? And, 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 and I got to share with you another story. I just talked to a gentleman before I came in here. This gentleman moved from Buffalo. He didn't even live in Buffalo. He was here on the day of the shooting to see his daughter graduate high school, I mean college, and go to law school. He had stopped in the tops at 220 or something like that, two something, to run in there and to get a cake. When he runs inside the place, it was just him. When he runs inside the place, he sees uh, he sees the guard down on the ground, dead, okay? Aaron Salter. And, or, and so he's looking at Mr. Salter. He's looking down. He's standing in the store. He's looking around. All of a sudden, he hears more gunshots. Bop, 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 bop. He's, he, first thing he does, do he, he starts to duck. He's looking around people, and he says he's got to run out. He's got to get to his daughter's graduation. He's scared to death. He runs out. All the way while they're driving to Niagara Falls with his wife, with his ex-wife, he's talking about what's going on. He, what could he have done? Could he have saved somebody? Could he have helped? He's traumatized. Now, he's back in Michigan. I just talked to him, but he said him and his family are traumatized. His, his ex-wife is traumatized. How do they deal with it? He hasn't had any mental counseling as at of all. yet. Wow. At all. As of yet. Let's broaden the discussion. Does any of this speak to the lack of access to mental health treatment? Well, or or does it speak to the reluctance? People just don't want to get that. Well, I, I think it speaks more honestly to the reluctance All right. because because uh, Carl is receiving. Uh, a, a treatment. He is talking to a counselor. Okay, and, and there's others talking to counselors, but. He believes that it's not enough. He still is, he's traumatized to the point where he's literally a grown, tough man crying every single day, reliving this nightmare. And to compound it, his house is falling apart. He can't get any assistance. Now, the pastor did say you got to go to this different place, and he should have went down to down to City Hall. But he said, Nate, I'm so traumatized, I can't. I can't even I don't want to be around anybody. I can't make the application? Is that what he's saying? Yes. Okay. He's saying he's so distraught. So, and, and you know, so I understand they say, well, but people got to come out to do whatever. Well, what about the people that can't come out, Dave? What about the people that are so mentally destroyed until all they can do is sit in their home and cry? What ideally would you have them receive? I think realistically, re realistically, especially if they cannot work, that they should be at, at least probably given about $25,000 um, at least for the next one or two years. I mean, literally, I'm, I'm serious because they because have Because their to, income has been jeopardized or yeah, eliminated. Even. This guy's income been eliminated. Can you imagine making $60 an hour to go to nothing, to begging, to, you know, trying to get handouts? And so, so his pride is destroyed also. You see what I mean? That's why it's so hard for him to talk. But he does want to talk more. He says he's mentally messed up. He says there's a guy that lives near him that was in the place too, lives in him. He's been knocking on his door trying to get in contact with him. He's trying to bring the survivors together. That's what I would ask the people listening to this, this uh, show, that if you're a survivor, if you know a survivor, if they could messenger me, if they could contact me, you know what I mean, uh, if, they could, if they could come together, they need to coalesce together because there's numbers, there's power in numbers. You know, there's strength in numbers. Mm. They should come together and talk about what they need. And the way to reach you, we can talk about this after the break, too. The way to reach you is through your Facebook page? Uh, sure, through my Facebook page, or you can also go to my messenger, and you, you can leave a message. i, I got to mention this. Uh, I saw a piece on, I think it was Channel 7, about a month or so ago, about all the activism work you do and how a lot of other folks are a little more grassroots on the streets. Not that you're not, but that you really do concentrate a lot of your work through your Facebook page. 
Uh, well, absolutely. I found out uh, many years ago that it was a direct connection to people. And believe it or not, people actually watch Facebook more than they watch the news. It's, it's just that simple. People get their news from Facebook. And so it became an avenue for me to talk to the people. Uh, I was really high strung at first, but I really calmed it down. <laughs> but now you're calm. Well, well, I, I, I somewhat. <laughs> I, I, try, I try to remain as calm as possible, but I'm very passionate about my people. It's about my people. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, black, white, Puerto Rican, Arabian, Jew, Gentile. All of us. All the same people. All right. Nate Boyd is with us. He's an activist on the east side, as you've heard. Uh, he's pushing for more benefits for survivors. And his definition of survivors, in some ways, is a lot broader, too, than some of the discussion we've had before. When we return, I want to get a little bit more into that, talk about some of the other issues that you work on. And then we'll really talk beyond the survivors about what the East Side needs right now. Wow. Nate Boyd is with us. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. On Fresh Air, you'll hear from people who really make you think, like astrophysicist Brian Greene explaining the scientific theory that our universe is just one of many. And the image that I like to have in mind is, imagine that our universe is like one slice of bread in a much grander cosmic loaf, with the other slices of bread being other universes. No subject is too big for Fresh Air. Join us. Weeknights at 7 p.m. on WBFO. So, that extra car you're not using anymore? The one that's been hibernating in your garage all winter? Donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. Pickup is free and the process is easy. Learn more at wned.org slash vehicles. Looking for something great to watch on TV tonight? Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to find out what's on WNED PBS. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And Nate Boyd is with us. We're talking about some of his efforts locally to try and get more outreach, not just more money, but more outreach to those who have been affected by the top shooting, specifically people who had been in the store but maybe have not seen the level of benefits that certainly Nate would want to see them have. And and during the break, people might have been actually watching us on your Facebook page and heard us do a little bit of discussion off air here. We, we talked about the outreach idea, that not only is you say there's not enough funding, but there's not enough outreach to get to these people and say, hey, services are there. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, what Carl said to me, again, I'd like to reiterate, is the fact that he, he he's not a people person. Uh, he's a very private gentleman. He really did, you know, going out and going to different places and dealing with the public right now is just extremely hard for him. And so what I would suggest uh, to the powers that be that if you have these people's information, if you know who they are, we're in there, if you have their contact information, that perhaps you could re-energize your efforts to reach out to them. Uh, you know what I mean? To go, if they have any anyone that hasn't filed an application for assistance and you guys are aware was in there, why don't you reach out to them? Why don't you go to their homes? Why don't you give them a phone call? All right. Beyond this, 
you're certainly active in a lot of other issues. And I'm active more than just the east side. I'm all across yeah, no, Buffalo. Okay. All right. That's cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll define it that way. What, what do you think is the biggest need right now in the city of Buffalo? Well, um, boy, there's a multitude of things that, that we need. But I can, I can say uh, one thing just from dealing with what happened uh, this year with the, uh, with the, the storm. A snowstorm. Sure. Yep. Okay. I, I'd, I'd like to just to just say this, that I know that it, it, in, in hindsight, everything is always 2020, right? But I will say that hopefully they'll be more prepared and they learn from this. I can tell you one thing that I know that Buffalo needs. And if I had a ran for a uh, councilman, you did uh, once, year. and we'll get to that. <laughs> if I had a ran for councilman, one of the platforms I would have ran on, and I hope that, that people are interested in this, is creating a snow brigade in every district. A snow brigade. Uh, that's a team that comes around, and after the snow plows come through, they come through and they do your sidewalks. And any elderly, they do their steps and they do their driveways. It needs to be there. Needs to be a team that strictly does this. And every time the city a employees, big snow, a city team. Well, they're not necessarily city team. I okay. think I think that they should be hired from the from the BMHA. All right. From the BMHA residents. This can give them something to do because the original thought, what came from in the BMHA and uh, Neil, uh, 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 Neil, uh, uh, can't think of my man, uh, Neil's last name, but anyway, um, he thought of, of, of creating a snow brigade for BMHA so they could shovel all those people out. And what he said was, we just need a couple of uh, 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 snow plot, good, good uh, uh, snow blowers and some shovels and we'll create the team and they were going to do it for free. Well, I would say we could create this. We could give BMHA residents employment, and we could hire them to become the snow brigade in every district. And every time it snows, these guys are out here. They're doing what they got to do, making a little extra money for their family, but they're creating a way for all the citizens. And in the process, I imagine there'd also be a lot more personal connection. You've got someone on your steps shoveling your walk. They're going to know a little bit more about whether you need the groceries or sure. whether, whether you— uh, have heat, those kind of issues. Sure, it's because of this region that we live in. Now, we go through this stuff. We go through this stuff every single year, okay? You know what I mean? And uh, we have so many disabled uh, all over the city. So why wouldn't we create a plan like this? Why wouldn't we take some of that that COVID money and uh, and create a snow brigade, a shovel brigade? I mean, across the city, but, but especially in the uh, impoverished areas, in mm. the areas of the, the, the don't-haves, you know what I mean? And, and that would be one thing that we could do. Now... On the other hand, summertime, you could turn that right around in the summertime and use these same people to assist uh, to assist the people to take care of our grounds, to take care of all these lots all across the city, all the high grass, whatever. We could go right to these same BMHA communities and, 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 and hire these people who aren't working, these young people who aren't working, these kids who aren't working, and put them to work out there cleaning up their community where they live at, keeping it clean, and then... They probably wouldn't throw so much garbage around. It probably would. Once you beautify it and you're a part of it, think about it. You wouldn't destroy the beauty of where you live at. Couple so years, thought. couple years back, you ran for Maston District Councilman, mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I don't want this program to become exclusively politics. But let's go there for a second. Is the city doing enough in general on issues of those who don't have things? You, you spoke of them as uh, I like that phrase. You said those who don't have. Um, is the city doing enough for them? Well, I, I don't. I don't think the city actually is doing enough for the residents because residents are continually losing their homes. Okay, and and listen, and listen. I want everybody to understand this. I have nothing against the foreign 
people who come here. I have nothing against them. I have plenty of Arabian friends, Bangladesh. I have nothing against them. What I have, what I am against, is how the city lets these people come in, group their money up together, and buy so much property on the east side, okay? Uh, open up three or four supermarkets on the east side. Everything that you see on the east side now, which these foreign people are doing, is stuff I talked about years ago that we should have How did. could the city restrict it, though? You can't tell people not to, not to pool their money and buy stuff. Well, uh, that's right. You can't tell people to pull their money and buy stuff. But the point is, this city, especially with our brown mayor, had all these years to pull his people together to make funding for them to 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 create uh, to create this this mentality, this synergy where where people would put their money together in the community. Okay, uh, imagine a place in a community where the people who live in the community own the store they shop at. So your your big argument there is not enough leadership, especially from the brown man for the brown people and and other people of color on the east side, financing opportunities to borrow, to build. Can you lay the entire historic disinvestment on the east side at the feet of the mayor? Um, you know what? I can't lay the entire thing on the feet of the mayor because there's also county officials and others that are involved too and the county could have did a lot of things too that they didn't do but this is my thing with the mayor because when the mayor first came I loved Byron Brown I was so happy I moved back here from Buffalo to be with my man Byron Brown okay but right after his first term I was already being disturbed about what I was not seeing on the east side for God's sake the man lives right off of Jefferson so why did it take so long for even those small improvements on Jefferson? Why isn't there another store over there? Why didn't he do more? You don't understand. He he was our he was our 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 hero. You understand what I'm saying? He to, to you he was the Obama. He was yeah he was the, the hero. first black African American. That's man. why so many black people voted for him no matter what because we saw a change. We saw an opportunity. But the East Side has went down. It hasn't come. It hasn't gone up. Listen, I, I was so uh, disingenuous with him when uh, Sergio Rodriguez, the Republican, ran for office. Yeah, yeah. I, I was out there helping Sergio Rodriguez, the Republican. I'm a Democrat because I wanted to see change. It's not about Republican Democrat. It's about the people, brother. I still, and and we have tried on a couple of different occasions to bring the mayor on this program. Uh, he's certainly welcome any time. But with him not being here, I feel obligated to try and pose a counter-argument to you. Okay. And and to my mind, a big part of that counter-argument is that the problems are so immense that one man representing one city can't get all of that stuff that you're talking about done. You talk about investment, that's banks. That's not necessarily the city. Do you see my point? I do see your point, but I, I, would, I, would, I would tag back against that. Look at all the, the development downtown. Look at all he was able to, 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 to bring downtown. I mean, look at all that. I mean, you can't lay it all at one man. But listen, he's the head, and he puts together the team. You understand? And the team together. So it's not about the one man. It's about the man and his team that failed us. You understand? This is what I'm saying. But but he has done a lot of great things as far as this city. Build it up, build it up. My only thing is, and my heartbreak is, why did he do enough for us on the east side. And I told this to him, listen, me and the mayor talk like have talked like you talk in, okay. in the past, okay? So we, 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 we have a rapport. I do not hate him. People say I hate the mayor. I don't hate the mayor. <laughs> I don't hate Byron Brown. I just hate our situation. I hate our plight. And 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 and, and if we don't and if we don't get our people to understand how they can go to the resources to to, uh, to improve their homes, to get funding to save their homes, then 
uh, Buffalo, especially the east side, will not even be a brown east side anymore. I have never asked this question of an activist and got a negative answer because I think those who are active in change see the potential for change. Uh, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Are you an optimist? Do you think change is actually possible? And I'm not talking political change. I'm saying in general, on, on the east side, in the city, um, are you optimistic about the ability to achieve change, not only some of the economic issues you've talked about, but perhaps race relations? I'm so glad you brought that up. In general, are you an optimist? I am an optimist because I know what the possibilities are, and I know we're getting short on time, but I know what the possibilities okay. are. And, and what I would say to you is I, I am optimistic. I'm optimistic about our young people. Now, what I have proposed before, and I don't know if it fell on deaf ears or not, but I proposed, I said, you have to change the mentality of our kids to change the condition of what's going on in the community. Now, how do you change the mentality of the kids, of the, of the youth? You have to start when they're young, when they're little. You have to create that discipline and that mindset while they're young. So I've said, and this is what I was going to do before I decided to leave out of Buffalo and back and forth, whatever. I was going to go to the school board, and I wanted to say, let's, let's institute a program in the schools where, where children from, from first grade, from, from, uh, from five years old to 12 years old, they have to take martial arts. They have to take martial art classes in school. Let's be let's be it become part of the curriculum. Because when you teach a child discipline when from the time they're young, five, six, seven years old, by the time they become 12, 10, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. They are disciplined. They have self-respect. They have self-control. This is one way. It's out of the box, perhaps, here in America. But in other places, Korea, China, Japan, this is how they're doing it. And look at their kids and look at ours. Now I'm telling you, once they get 12, 10, it's too late. So why don't we just try that and bring some discipline to our kids? Our pa the parents can't discipline them. So youth gives you hope. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. All right. We are out of time. A lot more to talk about. We'll have you back at some point, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig into a lot of this further. Nate, well, as we close here, you mentioned earlier in the program that you want people to reach you to try and pull together the survivors. How do they do that? How do they reach you? Again, you guys, you know, you can go on, on my page, you know, Nate Boyd Facebook Live. Um, you can certainly go to my messenger. If you're not my friend, you can also uh, you know, can leave a message. I'm sure we can become friends. But it's just important. Listen, this is about y'all. I tell everybody, it's not about how many views I get, how many likes I get. It's about how many shares I get because I know that you guys are sharing it with each other. And most importantly, the comments. When you guys start making comments, you start talking to each other. As you converse with each other, then I'm right out of the picture. And it's about us. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right. So glad you came. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Coming up next, my pleasure. a look at debt, and actually debt relief, freedom from debt, as a civil rights issue. There's a group at UB, the University of Buffalo, that's doing that. We'll talk to a couple people involved in that movement with Jay Moran next. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Hi, it's Robin Young from NPR's Midday News Magazine Here and Now. We'll bring you all the news that happens between the morning headlines and the afternoon wrap-up, plus conversations with authors and artists, stories that affect you, maybe a story about you. So please join us for NPR's Midday News Magazine Here and Now. Listen to Here and Now, weekdays at 1 p.m. Are you looking for a rewarding career in public media? Visit WNED.org careers to learn more about becoming a part of a talented team dedicated to making a difference in our communities. Employees at Buffalo Toronto Public Media enjoy a variety of outstanding benefits. We are located in downtown Buffalo and we have free parking. We are focused on inclusivity and belonging. Come as you are and apply today. 
visit wned.org careers. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. We're going to talk about consumer debt in this next segment. And with us, uh, we have a couple of attorneys. Well, one's an attorney, one's a law student. We're going to talk with uh, Paulette Campbell, who is the managing attorney for Claro Buffalo. Hi, and thanks for being here, Paulette. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you. Thank oh, you for having me. Oh, definitely. Uh, pleased that you could make it. And also, Glenada Garlock, who is a student at the University of Buffalo, but is also with the Civil Rights and Transparency Clinic. Uh, Glenada, thanks for being with us as well. Thank you. All right. So, consumer debt. This, this, you could just say it in one way, and it's its own issue standalone. But what you are working with, and you and your colleagues are working on, is to try to help people get through certain situations where not only can debt pile up real quick, I think we all have a feel for that, unfortunately, but also the fact that there are improprieties that are kind of common, I guess, when it comes to debt collection agencies. Maybe I'm Maybe I shouldn't be using the word common there, but they do happen. Mm -hmm. And when they happen, the consumer gets impacted. Paula, maybe just outline some of the things that people go through. Okay, sure. Um, Just speaking from um, people personally, a lot of times people think um, people don't want to pay on their debts. That's not the case. A lot of times something happened personally in a person's life, whether it's divorce, medical issues. We have a a big cancer issue here in Western New York. Um, And when that happens, uh, that takes away from a person's household income where they're unable to pay on their their debts. Um, So that can compile. Uh, We have our Claro Buffalo Legal Clinic, and we have people that are being sued by debt collectors. Um, If they have issues being sued by debt collectors or uh, issues with some of the credit reporting, they can come to our legal clinic sessions. Um, When you ask what is common about some of the debt collection activities, I would say a lot of times people, they get served with a summons and complaint by a creditor. And a lot of times they just put it off to the side. And that's just because they see a two-page document as a summons and complaint. Um, It's not served by someone that looks like a process server or the plaintiff named in the lawsuit is not someone that they're familiar with or an entity that they're familiar with because uh, a lot of times it's a debt buyer that's collecting. Right. They may have like a Sears credit card or a JCPenney credit card, but that might be from uh, historical. Now it's on to maybe multiple funding or Midland Midland funding. Sure. Yeah. So they they see that and they take it as, uh, well, this doesn't affect me. I never had an account with them. I had an account with Sears. So they'll put it to the side and then they'll get a default judgment. Um, and then they won't know that anything happened or transpired or that they even got a default judgment until years later when their wages are being garnished or their bank accounts frozen for this debt that they were unaware of having. And it's simply because it was a debt buyer. Yeah. Now, Glenada, you're a, a law student getting involved in this. So tell me about your experience so far in helping people out here. 
Yes, so I'm a second year law student, um, and I'm currently a student attorney with the Civil Rights and Transparency Clinic, which is a UB legal clinic in the law school. Um, and for our clinic, we have to volunteer at Claro, um, and we are under a practice order. So we get to do anything that an attorney um, would be able to do under the supervision of Paulette and my supervising attorney, Heather, from the clinic. Um, and we mostly do, like, the motions to vacate and dismiss. So that's, like, issues with um, the process server. So if the, if, if the visitor was never served um, properly then the um, the collection of the debt isn't valid. Um, or if the credit, um, the debt collector, if they did not show that they have the valid title, like the chain of title um, from the original debt, that's also another challenge. So um, being a student attorney, we like get to do those, we get to draft those motions, then we get to, if, if it gets that, we can argue those motions in court. Um, and we also just get experience doing trauma-informed care with the visitors, so that's fun. You brought up so many different things that I, I want to get into, <laughs> uh, for sure. But I, I, let's make sure that we all understand this then. Most people, I would think, kind of consider debt. I, I know how it was for me. I'm, you know, I'm still got a mortgage. I guess that'll always be debt. But you know, I under, you know, I had, you know, the whether the revolving credit and all that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. that that sense that it's always going to be there. It's just a problem. But it sounds like there are rights that people don't understand that they have when it comes to consumer debt. Is, is that is that the, correct? Yes, that is correct. Unfortunately, um, and I would say across the state, there's an issue where people, they don't have the wherewithal to understand legal documents. Um, and Unfortunately, because they have certain debts, they cannot afford an attorney. Um, so we're able to provide that free legal service for them where they have an attorney that can explain different things to them. Um, they definitely have rights. Uh, they have the right to defend themselves in the case, and we can help them through that. Um Definitely have a lot of rights, okay. and we can explain that through uh, Clara Buffalo. And we want to make sure that we also understand that there's an opportunity at what the Merriweather Library every Tuesday from 4 until 7. Yes. Yep. Every 4 to 7 on every Tuesday evening. We're there. Claro Buffalo. We have attorneys on staff. Uh, We also have uh, the students, the law students. They're trained. They can help and meet with the visitors and explain the legal process to them as well. And so this is an opportunity, like you said, to get a little understanding. Maybe maybe you have a debt. Maybe you just don't understand how you had a debt of $100 and now there's a you know a judgment for $700 right, or whatever exactly. the case may be. The, these are questions that you can help work through. Absolutely. So Absolutely. what should people bring when they come to see Everything. you? Everything. Everything they have <laughs> pertaining to the debt. All paperwork. It doesn't just bring it all. Bring it all. We'll look through everything. Um, we want to see the summons and complaint. If they received anything from the debt collector or the original creditor, if they have statements, we can look through all that. Um, we also can run free credit reports for them as well. If they have any questions about other debts that um, they want to know about, we can run free credit reports as well at the, the clinic. You told me a story before we went on the air, and this is an interesting uh part of the holding on to these records. You said mm-hmm. that one woman came in with a bag full of records, yes. but it turned out well for her. It did. Miss A, I won't use her name. That's fine. Miss <laughs> uh, A, she came and brought a bag full of lots of paperwork, lots of paperwork. At the time, I was also a foreclosure attorney with the West New York Law Center. And so I was able to take a look at all those documents. It took me forever. But she had a statute of limitations issue. Um, so she was being sued by a uh, 
her uh, mortgage company, uh, Bank of America. She was being sued by them. However, the statute of limitations had passed. There's a six-year statute of limitations on contracts in New York State. And they sued her six years and two days after the statute of limitations. So there's a six-year statute of limitation. They sued her, well, not two days, sorry, two months. Okay. So they t- sued her two months after the statute of limitations had passed. But she had this letter um, from the, the Bank of America saying that if you basically accelerating the loan. So we were able to take that document. I made a motion to dismiss. Uh, it was granted. So her mortgage was discharged as a record. The foreclosure action dismissed. And we were able to get some attorney's fees as well. So bring all your documents. We <laughs> can try to find whatever legal issue or defense that we can find. So, yeah. And Glenada, though you're a law student, through this process, you've actually gone to court with your clients. Yes, I have. Um, I My cases were um, a little easier. They were just um, credit card or like car loan that defaulted and then um, it was transferred to the um, the the, credit, the debt collector. It was transferred to them like 10 years later. Um, and so then we have the, the foreign like debt collector coming and trying to um, collect that. And then so my argument was simple. They just didn't have the correct documentation to show that they owned the debt. Um, and therefore, I just asked the court to vacate the default judgment and dismiss the case. Did they dismiss it? Um Kind of. <laughs> that sounds like a victory. <laughs> yeah, it's still it's still going on. So it was it was vacated, but they didn't necessarily dismiss the case. So they're going to give the creditor um, another chance to um, provide the correct documentation. Um, whether they do that or not, I guess is up to them. But we're, it's still in process. But it does show you that there are again back to it. There are right. There are. I mean, the laws are pretty complicated. If you've ever, I mean, yeah. obviously you guys, <laughs> you, yeah. you're professionals and you know how to to, to work through it. But for the, mo- the, the most consumers, it's it's not an easy mm-hmm. lift, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of legalese that they have to interpret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And does this is this problem then? Is it particularly acute for? low-income people, for people of, of minorities. Is that what we find? Absolutely. Definitely an economical issue. Uh, we see a lot of people, low-income, middle-income people. Um, they, A lot of people, they work. Um, they sometimes work check-to-check, um, unable to afford some of the, the basic necessities. So we definitely see that. We also see a lot of uh, people of color um, that come to our legal clinic as well um, with issues. So definitely an economical and a racial justice issue that we deal with. Oh, we're talking uh, with uh, Paulette Campbell and also Glenada Garlock. We're talking about consumer debt opportunities, though, perhaps to get some representation and help work through your case as well. Uh, but I think it's just worth noting that uh, there are you do have rights, and that's what we're trying to get into here just a little bit. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back with more on Buffalo What's Next. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Animal boredom. I'm Bob Hershon, and this is Science Update. Humans aren't the only species that suffers from the negative effects of boredom. That's one reason zoos provide enriching toys to keep captive animals stimulated. Now, animal welfare scientist Charlotte Byrne of the Royal Veterinary College is making the case for the study of boredom in animals. Boredom has not really been studied from a biological point of view before, but it's really important to do so because it causes lots of problems in humans and it could be potentially a really huge welfare issue for animals as well. Byrne writes in the journal Animal Behavior that, like us, animals may avoid monotony by engaging in dangerous behaviors, 
For example, they might eat harmful foods or inspect a predator's scent. But, she says, boredom may also have a function, boosting resilience by motivating animals to explore new niches. I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. With us uh, this morning, we have Paulette Campbell. Paulette is the uh, managing attorney for Claro Buffalo and also Glenada Garlock, who is a second-year law student at the University of Buffalo, and she's with the Civil Rights and Transparency Clinic, and we're talking about consumer debt. Uh, I asked you this, and I'll throw this out to both of you. In some, you, you, take a, you take a loan, you use your credit card, you owe somebody some money. We all understand mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. But there are some practices that are being employed that are not just unethical, but they're illegal, right? Yes, yes. Well, Def- yeah, yeah, go ahead and get into some Definitely. of those. Um, one defense that we commonly use is usury. Um, usury um, in New York State, there's a 16% interest rate that credit cards can charge. Anything over that, they have to prove that they're able to charge uh, over 16%. So a lot of times credit cards, we see interest rates 24.95%, 26.95%. And if they can't prove that, then they're not entitled to that interest. So that's one of the things we see unjust enrichment. Um, that's a defense where uh, people, they're being charged late fees, uh, collection costs, things like that. So a $100 debt can now be $700 by the time the, the lawsuit is brought. So definitely different defenses, definitely different rights that people have. Standing is a big one. We talked about the debt buyer and the debt buyer buying the debt for pennies on the dollar, but not having the actual documentation that they need in order to bring a lawsuit. Because if you don't have, uh, if you don't own the debt, you can't bring a lawsuit. You have to prove that you have standing to sue. So we see that all the time. So that's some of the the common uh, things that we see. Maybe turn it around now. Somebody shows up at Meriwether Library on a Tuesday. Maybe Glenator, you want to take this or whatever. And they just you know, maybe the, maybe you're opening up their eyes to possibilities they didn't know before. How does the the, the typical person show up? What kind of you know what kind of uh, like you used the word before trauma informed lawyering? Um, is that what we see that people are? You know, I, like I said, I mentioned my own personal experience in this. I know how it kept me up at night sometimes. Um, I can imagine it must be difficult for some of these clients when they come in to see you. It's really, really difficult. Um, I have a very trauma-informed background. Um, I'm very empathetic. Um, And so this is definitely an area where I excel, and I've definitely had to teach my classmates um, that, and we learn in the clinic too very often. Um, But when these people come in, they're always, they're usually frantic. They're nervous. They're anxious about, um, like, especially if their wages are frozen, if their accounts are frozen Mm, or their wages are being garnished, they're like, I need money next week for food. Like, I cannot have them garnishing my whole paycheck. Um, And so first, we just have to really acknowledge, like, what happened to these people. Not what did they do wrong or how they got themselves in this situation, but just all the conglomerate of things that are happening to them that can cause their current state. And just um, kind of let them know that 
we understand that it's hard um, being in a privileged position of being an attorney or being a um, about to be an attorney. It can cause a big disconnect from somebody who is like insecure about um, like their food or their housing or their job. Um, so being trauma informed and really letting the visitors know that we care and we want to solve their problem together is so important. And even if we're unable to solve their problem, sometimes just the validation that that this is a problem and that it's not their fault and that they shouldn't be in this situation um, can be really helpful for a lot of these people. It, obviously, when it gets to the point where they're garnishing wages, that, that's very serious. And if you're talking about taking full paychecks, that's it almost doesn't sound like it's um, <laughs> like it should be allowed. But what about that? I mean, how are there remedies? Somebody has that happening to them. Are there some remedies, maybe not necessarily to get the whole debt you know, relinquished, but something that can help people, like you said, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and you don't think you're going to get a paycheck next week because you've got this debt agency taking your money, you know, are there remedies, I guess, for, for people in that situation? Yeah, Paulette can talk more, but um, from my experience, if if it's like the sheriff's office um, has initiated the wage garnishment, as soon as the visitor comes, we're able to issue like the, I think it's called a stay, where we can stop the garnishments at least while the litigation is happening. Yes, that's true. Um, it's 10% um, that they're allowed to collect, 10% of the, the paycheck. Um, but we order the court file for them because we want to see how they were served, what defenses they have in the lawsuit, and then we can make that motion to try to vacate the default judgment and put a stay, like Glenna was saying, put a stay where they can't um, proceed with trying to continue to, to collect, at least until the litigation is resolved. Okay, so it kind of slows things down a little bit, yes. lets everybody know what's really happening here. That's got to. I would think that's going to be something a client really yeah. appreciates. Absolutely. It, especially yeah. when you're... Now, what about like, uh, uh, in terms of phone calls and things along those lines? Are these other elements that people are receiving and can they take those kind of complaints yeah. to you as well? Yeah. Under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, however, uh, they a debt collector cannot harass uh, uh, I guess a debtor. Okay. So uh, they can't call. They can't call your... They can, I mean, they can call, but only to a certain extent. They can't call you every single day. They can't call your mother's house because um, that's considered harassing, and that would be an FDCPA violation. Do we find that? Yes, we do often. You're able to help people. I mean, help people out then, if that's if that's the case. Yes, we've been taking more of those cases on in our office. Um, like I said, Clara, we're a limited scope legal clinic, so we can help them as much or as little as they need. But if it's more of a complicated issue, like FDCPA violation or something where people the person can't go to court, uh, we can take them on as a full-scope retainer under our um, Western New York Law Center uh, retainer agreement. Wow. Again, services are free of charge. Um, we're just helping them in a more um, hands-on capacity. Glenada, I always I, I see you out of the corner of my eye there like you wanted to add something to that. No, I'm actually not familiar with um, the Western New York Law Center's um, additional scope because for the Civil Rights and Transparency Transparency Clinic, we just push it, and I was just admiring Paulette. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true law student. Yes, very good, very good. Uh, so back to trauma-informed lawyering. When you were talking about that, Glenada, you mentioned how you felt like it's something that your some of your colleagues, some of your co-students, other students, fellow students, need a, an understanding of as well. 
yeah, it's not something that everybody just has. Um, and especially some people have trouble reading other people's social cues. Um, and that's completely normal. You know, we're all different. Um, but trauma-informed learning does take intention and it does take the education to learn. Um, like some people could be offended if your client, or in our case, the visitor, just clams up and is clearly like hiding something. But a lot of times that can be a, a uh, example of that that person experiencing a trauma trigger mm-hmm. and in order to get them to open up and tell you that thing that they're not stating you have to make them feel comfortable like there's some form of trust um, and so when you're learning how to be a trauma-informed lawyer there's just different um, mindfulness courses you can do there's just different examples um, to really learn how to view someone's body language or the way that they're speaking to you and to use that to kind of guide your own reactions so you can make them feel comfortable to open up and tell you what you need to know um, if you care to maybe comment on this but uh, you look when you use the term trauma trigger and we're talking about something this is not just again overspending a couple of bucks on your credit card you're talking about something that's considerably deeper. Yeah, because just because they're coming into the clinic for a debt issue doesn't mean that the debt issue is the only thing happening in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it can be as easy as I'm obviously, I'm a, well, they can't see me, but I'm a black Latino woman. um, But it could be a lot different if I was a white man and you have a black woman coming in who has some kind of trauma um, against an out, like against white men, like there might be an immediate disconnect that that man would have to go an extra step to make sure that that woman feels comfortable. Um, whereas me, she might automatically feel comfortable because I look like her. Mm-hmm. So you, And that could go the other way around, too. A white man could come in and not feel comfortable with me representing being mm-hmm. his lawyer, and I would have to take steps to make him feel comfortable with me being his attorney. So you kind of just have to take all of life into account um, and really understand the position that the person across the across the table from you as in. Well, Paulette, I mean, well, you're right across from the table for me, and you also have been doing this professionally now for uh, a little more time as well. I mean, you ha- have encountered that that type of situation oh, as well. yeah, absolutely. Being able to empathize with your clients is a big, big part of lawyering, I would say, uh, because they come in and a lot of times you're not able to get what you need um, out of the initial conversation. But if you can say, hey, listen, I know you're going through this. Uh, you can kind of get to the deeper root of the issue and then kind of, and that kind of like makes you, makes them more comfortable. Um, you're able to empathize with them. Um, sometimes I'm look, like, look, I hate, hey, <laughs> I, um, I grew up low income as well. Um, I can connect with certain people. I'm, I'm a black woman. Um, that, uh, when it comes to low to middle income people, I can kind of connect with that. Um, but being able to empathize with your clients and put yourself in their shoes, it's 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 a lot, but it also uh, will get you the the information that you need in order to effectively represent them in the case. And if you don't mind, maybe just exploring this for for a moment, but because um, Glenada touched upon it and you did as well, that you know, as a person of color, um, you are able to have a certain type of empathy mm-hmm. for your client, perhaps, and and. We've done enough programs on on the show about the way the the criminal justice system. It's a difficult. It can be a difficult road for people of color, black yes. people, especially here yeah. in Buffalo. So, how about for you, the, the sense of what you not represent, but what you can do for people of color here in this community? What can I do for people? Um, 
I mean, just the idea that who you are and, you know, I mean, how, what, I guess I'm asking you, you know, how does that make you feel? Or is it, you know, that's just that's one part of what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're an attorney, you've got professional responsibilities. Yeah. But is there something more beyond that for Ooh, you? That's, that's deep. Um, <laughs> and that's why <laughs> that's I wasn't sure question. if you wanted to go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, being a, a black attorney in um, Western New York, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. It can be difficult at times. I'm able to connect with the community um, that otherwise wouldn't have uh, attorney representation. Um, I get a lot of phone calls from different people, emails, um, and I try to help as much as I can. Um, but I think seeing people like you, uh, representation matters. So seeing um, if I were a client and I saw someone that looked like me, I would feel, you know, more trusting of them, depending on what they say, of course, right. um, and how they treat you, of course. Um, but that allows me to be able to, to relate um, with a lot of the clients that I have. Because um, like I said, not only um, am I black, uh, I grew up low income, I have children, I have a, a bad cat at home. So <laughs> I'm able to try to uh, you know relate with sure. uh, my clients. And I think that goes a long way. Um, I hate to say it, but sometimes some of my colleagues really can't relate as well as I can to some of the people um, due to their backgrounds. They may have grew up with, um, you know, in a, a high income household. But being able to connect with our low to middle income community, that is a big, big thing that you need to do in order to effectively represent someone. Thank you for sharing that. I really do appreciate that. I know it wasn't necessarily easy for yeah, you, but how about for, how, how, how about for you, Glenada? <laughs> I mean, you're the, you're the student. You're the one trying to, to you're going to grind through this next year and a half and become an attorney. Yeah. So I think once you get into the legal world, there is so much support for people of color, especially in Buffalo. We have a very strong minority bar. Mm -hmm. um, however, what is really hard is bridging the gap from, like me and Paulette both grew up low income, bridging that gap from being low income to becoming an attorney. We still have a lot of work bridging that gap. And I think that's why Claro is important is because it helps people with these just completely life-wrenching situations that they're not going to be able to get past. They're not going to be able to recover from this. And we can help them recover. We can also show them what a future looks like without those issues, um, like being on the other side of the table. And I think it truly inspires them. I've had a lot of people come up to me um, that have followed my journey and they're like, you know, you just inspired me to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday. And so I think being a black attorney for me is just showing people how to get to a place to prosper um, because we need we need to help the other people. There's not access right now and we can provide that. So that's why. I am where I am. Well, keep keep that in mind when when you're studying for those uh, those finals this uh, this spring as well when you're grinding through. I will need to. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So once again, we want to make sure though that we talk about the uh, the opportunity though for for folks at Meriwether Library. How does that go again? Yes, every Tuesday evening from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, Claro Buffalo. We're at the Frank E. Meriwether Library on Jefferson Avenue in Buffalo. Uh, Bring all your paperwork that you have. Um, if you were sued by a credit card company, medical debt company, student loan company, or an auto loan company, we can help you through the process. So just uh, stop on by. Don't need an appointment. No, no appointment. Walk-ins are welcome. We'll do an intake with you, and you'll be able to meet free of charge with an attorney who, who can help you draft paperwork or uh give you legal advice free of charge free yeah. of charge i like that as well yeah. and uh you like do, doing this work i do uh i find it very rewarding um and i think 
when I went to law school, I, I, I wanted to open up my own business, but I've been here 10 years and I find it very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Paulette um, Campbell and also uh, Glenada uh, Garlock, thanks very much for uh, joining us today on Buffalo What's Next. Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. It great. was fun. That <laughs> yeah, was. It was a great conversation, and thanks for, for sharing uh, with us today. This is Buffalo What's Next on your NPR station in Western New York. This is member-supported WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL in Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.